Thank you. Today's scripture readings comes from Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks to God, thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to the lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now what you have been seen, been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and ends eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning, good morning. Happy Father's Day. I hope all the, hope, hope all the kids are appreciating their daddies. Um, we started a little series in Romans 6 to 8, considering our new life in Christ. And if you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, just a little review. Paul asks this question. Hey, if we live under grace, why not sin? I mean, if grace means that God will love us no matter what we do, no matter who we are, then, then yeah. I mean, isn't it okay? What's to keep us from sinning? There's something, I think, very appealing about that kind of thinking, right? Live as you please. No rules. No constraints. Do what you want. Do it your way. Sounds very American to me. <laughs> um, recently saw the new movie Top Gun. I don't know if any of us saw that. But it um, was a lot of fun. Tom Cruise's character Maverick is this rebel that's always breaking the rules and getting himself in trouble. But that is the very thing that enables him to, in the end, save the day. I hope I didn't spoil anything by that. Um, Again, I think there's something in American culture that celebrates the audacious, adventurous rule breaker. That makes for fun movies, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We are not encouraged to do whatever we want, to live as we please. Grace is not a license to sin. But why? Why is that so? Or to put it positively, how does the gospel of grace promote godliness? Last time we said that Paul wants to give us a bigger picture of what Jesus has done for us. That there's been a regime change. That we've been transferred from one kingdom to another. That we've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection, and that though this, this has already happened, though not yet in fullness, and the application that we saw last time was that we are to see ourselves this way, to 
consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Well, if you notice in our passage, Paul raises the question again here in verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And then if you're looking here at the passage, notice how Paul begins his response. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Paul's saying if you present yourself as a slave, you, you are the slave of one that you obey. Notice if you don't have your Bibles if you don't, but back in verse 13, we actually skipped verses 13 and 14 last week, but verse 13, 14 talk about presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments of unrighteousness. Also, verse 19 says, talks about presenting ourselves as slaves, not to lawlessness, but to righteousness. In the ancient world, sometimes people would sell themselves as slaves. They were poor, can't pay their debt, and so they would choose to become a slave. They would enslave themselves. Paul's basic message here is that we were once slaves to sin, but now we have become slaves to righteousness. There's been a transfer, a regime change. And so now he's saying, so don't present yourself as a slave to sin. Present yourself as a slave to righteousness. That's the basic idea. A few things to think about here. I recognize slavery is pretty offensive language, and that might bother you, all this slave-enslaved language Paul has here in Romans 6. And I think if it bothers you, it is for good reason, because we believe it is wrong to enslave others, to treat them as property, to treat them as less than human, less than made in the image of God. But I hope that doesn't derail us from what I think Paul is saying, and that is that in some sense, we are slaves. And not only that we are slaves, but that we keep enslaving ourselves. Now, admittedly, I think that's pretty provocative language for Paul to say that we are slaves to sin or to righteousness. Maybe in the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. Might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. What's that mean? Slavery, freedom. I think our modern notion of freedom is that, well, we're free to do as we please, to live as we want, without restrictions, without constraint. We celebrate autonomy. But I'd like to suggest that is not the way Paul uses the word freedom in Romans 6. In fact, that cannot be the reason, the, the, the meaning. Because if you know, see verses 17, 18, verses, verse 22, Paul phrases it as we were once slaves to sin. We are, we've been set free and have become slaves to righteousness. <laughs> Freedom cannot mean that we are no longer slaves. Instead, Paul is saying we've been 
freed from one kind of slavery only to become another kind of slave. You're going to have to serve somebody. <coughs> Excuse me. So what does slavery mean? What does slavery mean? Do you feel enslaved? Do you feel like a slave? Paul says you are. I want us to think about what it was like to perhaps be a slave to sin. I want to give John Piper a little acknowledgement for this thought. What is it that we were slaves to sin? No one, I'm going to suggest, no one was forced to sin against their will. No one was coerced and threatened to sin. There was no, the devil made me do it. Right? No, we sinned because we chose to sin. We wanted to sin. The problem was not that our desires were denied. The problem is that our desires were misplaced. We were slaves to sin in that we loved sin. Our hearts were selfish, proud, greedy, jealous, vain, stingy, etc., etc. We have sinful desires of the flesh, as we read earlier today. Now, we were free to act on those desires. <laughs> we were free to act on those desires, but we were powerless to change those desires. I'd like to suggest that one aspect of slavery, Romans 6, is that we are, we are being controlled by the desires of our heart. We are being controlled by the desires of our heart. I want to suggest that that's, that's not my theory, but it's actually in the passage. Verse 13, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil Desires. That the dominion of sin involves obeying evil desires. Or verse 17 and 18. You who are once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. You became slaves of righteousness. That becoming a slave of righteousness involves an obedience, but not an <coughs> excuse me. Not an external obedience, but an obedience from the heart. That something has changed at the heart level. Or I think most helpfully, Paul writes in Titus chapter three, at one time we too were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Slavery involves being controlled by the desires of our heart. For most of my life, I was not much of a coffee drinker. When I did drink coffee, I added my cream and sugar. I like cream and sugar. It makes it taste better. I thought black coffee, honestly, was disgusting. I didn't know how people could drink that. Until a few years ago, a friend weighed out some beans on his, on his little scale, put them in his grinder, you know, ground it up fresh. He uh, boiled some water, got, had this Chemex coffee coffee maker, put in the filter, like heated the, like uh, pre-wet it, warm the flask, poured it out, put it on the, put in the freshly ground beans, 
put a timer and started measuring increments of water into the Chemex thing so that it would, the, the gas would bubble up and the coffee would slowly drip down. And about three, four minutes later, I had a cup of freshly ground pour-over coffee. And I discovered there are notes, there are flavors. Like more than bitterness, it tasted not sweet, but like there was a sweetness to it. And I didn't want to add cream or sugar. No, no, no. It would just cover over like the beauty of the coffee. I discovered the beauty of freshly ground pour-over coffee. I'd like to suggest that is one way we might describe this kingdom transfer, this conversion that we've now discovered something beautiful, something delicious, something better, so that we now have new cravings, new appetites. What we want has changed. It is a conversion of desires. Paul says we are enslaved to our desires. Jesus has freed us from being slaves to sinful desires so that now we can become slaves to righteous desires. That is, we enjoy righteousness more than sin. We enjoy Jesus and following Jesus more than living for ourselves, having our own way. We found something better. Well, with that understanding of slavery, let's go back to the question. So if we're under grace, why not sin? Why not sin? Last time, we answered this by saying, there's been a regime change. The Donbass has trans been transferred from Russian to Ukrainian rule. Uh, we are no longer in Egypt. We are now in the promised land. We are no longer living in an orphanage. We are now adopted into a beloved family with a full dinner table. We, this is what Jesus has done for us. You know, it's interesting, providential, I'd say, that we're talking so much about slavery in Romans 6 because today, aside from Father's Day, is Juneteenth. On June 19, 1865, federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, and General Gordon Granger told the slaves, the Civil War is over and you slaves are free. Slaves who used to toil in the fields from sun up till sundown, six days a week. Slaves who were fed food that was probably better suitable, suited for animals. Slaves who were under overseers who were tasked to extract as much work out of these slaves as humanly possible. These slaves were slaves no more. They are free. Now, General... Uh, Granger did not set them free. President Lincoln had actually signed the Emancipation Proclamation more than two years earlier. General Granger was simply delivering the news, the good news. 
the slaves were already free, but they were not living in that freedom. They didn't know. Paul in Romans is delivering the good news. In Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. The Emancipation Proclamation has been signed. The war has been won. A new kingdom has come. This is what Jesus has victoriously done for us. And it's not just this objective out there gospel. There's also now we see a subjective dimension that our hearts are changed as well. That God has removed our hearts of stone and given us a heart of flesh. That we have been set free from desiring sin so that now we can desire God. We are, we've become obedient from the heart as slaves of righteousness. We'll get to this when we get to Romans 8. But Paul will talk about how Christ has also sent us the Holy Spirit. That we who live according to Spirit set our minds on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit testifies that we are God's beloved children. And so we cry out, Abba, Father, Christ has given us a Spirit. And that Spirit has changed our hearts. You see, the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. Paul wants to give us a bigger picture. The kingdom of God has come. And the kingdom has transformed us from the inside out. Now again, Paul is speaking to those who are asking this question. Well, if we're under grace, why not sin? Meaning, there's kind of something in me that like... Can I sin? I'd like to sin. Can I have permission? Is that, is that all right? I'd kind of like to sin. And Paul's basic response is, I mean, do you see what Christ has done for you? Do you see what he has given you? Do you see who he has made you to be? The Emancipation Proclamation has been signed. The war is over. You are no longer a slave to sin. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? Why would you want to live like that? I think what Paul is doing, he is raising our hopes, raising our expectations. He's saying, you expect too little. <laughs> you are so much more. You see, to... For some of us who feel discouraged or perhaps defeated by sin, we've tried and failed, tried and failed too many times. We've kind of given up. I think Paul is trying to strengthen our faith to believe. No, no, no. Change is possible. In fact, change is inevitable. Change is inevitable. Not because you're so strong. I'm so strong. We're not. It's because Jesus is so strong. See what Jesus has done for you. See what he's accomplished. What a great savior. And seeing that is to then give us hope. Give us courage. It is to embolden us that we would dare to live godly holy, Christ-honoring lives. Instead of feeling defeated, 
we are emboldened by the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Well, that leads to my second point. Paul's saying we were once slaves to sin, but now we've become slaves to righteousness. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? The application Paul gives us in Romans 6, 15 to 23 is present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Present yourselves. Some of us might recognize from last time this indicative imperative structure, right? Indicative. This is what Christ has done for you. Statement. Command, live like it's true. Live like it's true. And last time we said, what that means is see yourself this way. Regard yourself, view yourself, reckon yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. And now, this time, Paul is saying, present yourself as slaves of righteousness. In fact, as we pointed out earlier, he repeats that command. Present yourself in verse 13, verse 16, verse 19. Present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Later in Romans 12, you might recognize Jesus says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. We are to present ourselves. And in one sense, I don't see this as a separate application as much as an unpacking of the first. That if we view ourselves, regard ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God, if we see ourselves this way, then we would handle ourselves. We would treat ourselves. We would present ourselves as people who belong to God, as slaves of righteousness. Present yourself. We said earlier that people used to present themselves as slaves. The picture is you're offering yourself. You're surrendering yourself. You are enslaving yourself. I'm sure we've all been to our share of weddings where a beautiful couple stands, faces each other, before witnesses, before each other, before God, and they enslave themselves. They present themselves. They surrender themselves. I promise before God and these witnesses to be a loving and faithful husband and wife in plenty and want, joy and sorrow, sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live. That is the picture I give you. Paul's saying, present yourself, surrender yourself, enslave yourself to the one you love. That in that marriage vow, it is not out of threat or coercion. It is out of desire. With joy, they commit themselves to the other. See, being under grace is not about having permission to sin or to live as we please. Being under grace is about having our hearts captured with a new affection. We love pour-over coffee, (laughs) a new taste. And from that heart, that desire, we now commit ourselves, offer ourselves to the one we love. This passage points to a spiritual practice that I don't hear about or we don't talk about as much these days, and that is this idea of consecration that we explicitly make these commitments, surrendering ourselves to God, Uh, giving our offering, 
could be an ex- a worshipful expression of this idea, where we say, here's my money that I'm going to give to you, God. But it's not a, all right, God, this is your money, and the rest of it is mine. No, when we give our offering, the idea is, no, all of my money, Lord, belongs to you. In fact, not just my money, but all of me belongs to you. And I am going to surrender myself, commit myself. I present myself to you as expressed in this offering of my money. I'm giving you all of me. I think it's captured well in an old hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. See, we are called to present ourselves. Surrender ourselves, enslave ourselves to our God. I want to pause for just a moment and ask you to invite the Holy Spirit, perhaps to prompt your own heart. Is there some specific way that he might be leading you to present yourself to him? Out of, out of desire, out of love, out of worship. It's been interesting for me this week as I've been meditating on this passage to wake up each morning and say, Lord, this day, this day belongs to you. Lord, I belong to you. Lord, this meeting that I have, Lord, this is yours. It belongs to you. I present myself. I surrender myself. I'm explicitly saying, I'm yours, Lord. Well, one last piece. The last part of uh, Romans 6, 20 to 23, Paul asks this question. So when you were slaves to sin, when you think back to that time in your life, how was that for you? How did that work out? What was that like? What do you think about that? Or more pointedly, Paul asks, what fruit were you getting from the things of which you are now ashamed? He's saying, hey, when you think back to when you were a slave to sin, were you really happy? I mean, didn't that result in a lot of misery, a lot of shame? Paul is suggesting that we can be on these two different paths that take us to two very different destinations. There are two different outcomes to these two different slaveries. Being a slave to sin produces misery. It is a path that leads to death. Being a slave to righteousness leads to sanctification and eventually to life eternal. Verse 16, earlier Paul said, being a slave to sin leads to death. Being a slave to obedience leads to righteousness 
he's saying, look, if you present yourself to sin, you choose sin, you offer yourself to sin, that leads to more enslavement. That leads to more misery, to more shame, and eventually to death. But if you present yourself to righteousness, that leads to more righteousness, more holiness, and eventually to life eternal. To the question, if we're under grace, why, why not sin? Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't want to go down that path. <laughs> I mean, think about where that's led you. Think about where it takes you. You want to go in the opposite direction. This is the path to life. Now, to be clear, choosing righteousness, it doesn't earn eternal life. Verse 23 makes explicit, it is a gift of God. But I do believe choosing righteousness, choosing, surrendering ourselves to God, presenting ourselves as slaves to righteousness leads to a greater experience of the depth and riches of his goodness and love. This is the path to life, not as something attached at the end, but the, the journey, the road itself is of life abundant. So let me try to tie these pieces together. I'm trying to suggest being freed from slavery to sin to becoming slaves to righteousness involves a conversion of desires. Our hearts are changed. That we enjoy God more. We enjoy sin less. If that's true, then I would suggest the strategy of the Christian life is to cultivate our desire for Jesus. The strategy is to fan the flames of our affection for Jesus. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. And how do we do that? How do we do that? We see who we are. We see what Christ has done for us. We see who he has made us to be. Meaning, we celebrate the indicatives of the gospel. We celebrate the, the emancipation proclamation has been signed. The war is over. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God. We've been united with Christ. And when we understand and we focus on the good news, I mean, you can think about the slaves in Galveston, Texas. We celebrate. It brings joy, it brings hope, it inspires worship. It inspires worship that our hearts say, oh Jesus, you're wonderful and amazing. We love you. Secondly, what do we do? We present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. We commit ourselves like a wedding vow. Wedding vow to the one we love. We surrender ourselves. And that wedding vow expresses and it deepens love for the other. We will love our spouses more for having made the commitment because now we have chosen a path that turns our hearts and our affections away from sin and toward the one we love. That this consecration, this dedication, this surrendering, this enslaving ourselves to Jesus nurtures greater affection. 
It moves us down that road. Which is the third point. We recognize the upward spiral. That obedience and righteousness leads to more obedience and righteousness. Leads to more and more life abundant. Meaning, pursuing Jesus leads to more of Jesus. Leads to enjoying Jesus. Leads to desiring Jesus, leads to pursuing Jesus, leads to more of Jesus. You're on an upward spiral. This is the path to life abundant. Paul points us away from grace as a license to sin and toward grace as a good news that leads to righteousness and life abundant with the Jesus whom we will love more and more and more. This is who you are, united to Christ in his glorious resurrection, that one day the only thing that will be filled in your heart is your love for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, oh, to love you more, to love you more, to love sin less and to love you more. God, we celebrate the good news of what you have done for us and who you have made us to be. I pray instead of being tempted and defeated by sin, we say, no, no, that's not who we are. We have been set free. We are now yours. And we give ourselves to you each day. Even now, even now in this worship service, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. Believing not only that we love you, but that this will help us to love you more. And it leads us down a path to greater joy, greater sweetness, greater worship, greater victory with you. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.